Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guests today are Remigiusz Rizinski and Sean gasper Bai. So this is actually my first episode in which I have two guests. So this is a landmark for the Outsider Theory podcast. Um, and so Remigiusz is the author of the new, or at least in English, new book, Foucault and Warsaw. Um, and Sean is the translator of that same book. So that will be our, the subject of our conversation. Um, just for a bit of background on both of them, Remigiusz is a professor, philosophy writer, translator. Um, Foucault in Warsaw was nominated for the Nike, which is Poland's most prestigious literary award. And he's also the author of A Stranger Story and My Life is My Own. Um, and Sean is a translator of Polish fiction, reportage, and drama. And he's published numerous translations, including Watercolors, History of a Disappearance, The King of Warsaw, and Ellis Island. Um, and he is the winner of the 2016 Close Approximations Prize, a 2019 NEA Translation Fellow, and formerly Literature and Humanities Curator at the Polish Cultural Institute in New York. So I will also provide links in the show notes for your additional work just to point people to it. So thanks to you both for joining me. Um, it's, it's a really fantastic book and um, I'm very much looking forward to talking about it. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for having me and uh, Sean. And it's, uh, it's a pleasure, thank you. Yeah, so I mean, this book, part of why I really enjoyed it is it's a, it's a kind of hybrid that manages to be a number of different books all in one. Um, in one aspect, it's a kind of archival detective story that involves digging up these um, materials related to a previously obscure and little-known episode in the life of this well-known figure, Michel Foucault. Um, it's also a, a sort of intellectual biography of Foucault during this kind of early period of his development. But then it's also a sort of oral history of a particular community. Um, in Poland in the late 1950s. And finally, it, it's, at certain times, is almost like a spy thriller because it turns out, to, and we'll get into this, but a community that's heavily infiltrated and surveilled by the, um, the state in this period, which of course is a theme close to Foucault's heart. So, um, so it's, it's a really interesting fusion of, of different genres and approaches that um, the kind of... Uh, approaches the subject from various different angles. And so, you know, I just to emphasize what I think it really adds to the table in our, our thinking about Foucault, you know, I actually went back and looked just through the, um, the two biographies of Foucault by David Macy and um, James Miller. And in both of them, this, this period he spent in Poland from 1958 to 1959 is, um, you know, treated in really just a page or two, right? And it's, it's not really fleshed out. Um, and for various reasons, you know, this was a significant moment. It's when he was gestating and writing his first major work, History of Madness. Um, and so, and, and it also kind of brought to a close a period when he was living abroad, first in Sweden. And so it um, is a, 
an interesting moment in his development. And yet it prior to this has really not been treated in great detail. So I think it's, it's important just for that. But um, first of all, if you could just, and you know, I'm happy to hear from both of you about this, just to fill in our listeners. Um, so why was Foucault in Warsaw? What was he doing there? And um, why, from your point of view, was this kind of a significant moment in his development? And you know, this is a question to either of you. Okay, maybe I start. Um, so um, first of all, in Poland, the most uh, important and bred probably bi uh, biography of Foucault is by Didier Ribon and uh, the oh, French right, of writer. Course, the French, yes, yeah, exactly. and uh, so that was my first um, step to to know uh, anything anything about Foucault and his stay in Poland. And um, I even wrote to Eribon and asked uh, him to, you know, if it's possible to interview uh, him about this period and, uh, and uh, about the sources that he used uh, in this book, but I have never received any response. <laughs> Maybe he was uh, too busy. Anyway, um, yeah, based on it and on the legend that I heard um, in Warsaw and in Poland. I studied uh, philosophy in Krakow, but then I moved to Paris and then I moved to Warsaw. So somehow it was kind of um, uh, easy way, you know, to, to discover Foucault and to discover and uh, love a little bit to his uh, theory, philosophy. And whenever I, I came finally to Warsaw and I, I, I found my place in Warsaw and I um, decided to stay uh, in Warsaw. I thought uh, that it might be a good moment for me to develop a little bit yeah, his history and uh, his, um, yeah, his stay in Poland, uh, not from the theoretical philosophical way or, uh, but just what I was interested in was his life, his uh, uh, you know journey, his his stay in Poland and Warsaw, his uh, whenever he met anyone and who was it and so on. And I asked a friend of mine who is a specialist, let's say, let's say so, uh, of uh, Foucault. Uh, I asked him about uh, his stay, and he admitted, yeah, he was here but it's just a legend kind of because nobody knows anything. And he probably stayed here a few months and he met this, this young boy and this boy who was his lover at this time uh, turned out to be a, a spy as well. And uh, that's why Foucault must have uh, been, or, or must have just, you know, uh, left the country immediately. And that was the moment that uh, I really <laughs> deeply realized that I want this story to be mine. And, <laughs> and I, um, you know, just basically went to the uh, IPAN, to the uh, how, how is it, Sean? IPAN? The Institute of National Remembrance. Yes. Warsaw, which archive. holds the archive of the, of the secret police, among other things. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, I started to do my research there, and I spent almost two years in the archive. And I finally find something, and that's, that's how the story uh, started, basically. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, the book is an interesting combination of these kind of two modes of reconstructing his, um, his time there, which one of which is documentary and archival, and then the other, which is oral and based on, you know, people's recollections. Um, yes. And I, yeah. Yeah. I was lucky to, to, when I found uh, the archive and I found that the Foucault uh, archive is not only his on his name, but it con um, it, it it has also some other guys there, um, and uh, so I I thought maybe I would be uh, it would be possible to to find them, even if it was quite some uh, uh, time ago, and I was lucky I did I found them. Um, and that's why I could have uh, spoke to them and talked to them and uh, interviewed them, and and that's why it's oral as well as well as a yeah history. And so, and the book is sort of a you know it treats the the intersection of Foucault's you know this well known figure's life with all of these completely unknown people he interacted with during this time. Um, and I think for just a bit more scene setting, it would be interesting to hear just as an overview, you know, what was the, what was the worst? So Foucault went to Warsaw as a kind of, as the director of a French cultural institute. Um, so what was the Warsaw of this time like that he encountered like, and I'd say more generally, and also within this, um, gay community that he became, associated with or um, at least circulated in somewhat. Um, so what, what was this world like that he encountered? Mm. Yeah, correct. He was young and um, not as popular and, uh, as he um, became later. And um, yeah, being kind of young, uh, <laughs> still after 30, uh, he was 30 something years old. Um, but he, he started his career. He was uh, working on his first um, first uh, big book and uh, important book. And uh, he was invited to, to create this, um, this institute. Um, and uh, he gladly agreed and uh, came to Warsaw because he was interested in the communism. And <laughs> so uh, that was his, the, the beginning of his, uh, let me say, I don't know, three years uh, trip uh, to Poland, Sweden and Germany. And uh, I believe it was uh, the short time, the last time he could have been completely free. And, you know, when you are at this age and you leave your country, you don't have any control upon you, you are a figure that has, that possessed the power and in communism uh, as well, money and connections, and you can have, and, and as well uh, a passport. So you can leave the country, which wasn't a case for anyone else, or at least not for everybody. You, it, was, it was necessary to ask the, the um, administration to, to receive the, uh, the passport to, to be able to leave the country. So he was a free man, young and beautiful, intelligent and healthy and wealthy. And he came to this poor country just after a few years, like 
uh, uh, 15 years probably uh, after the war. Some, uh, and um, very interested in the system, in communism, how it works, how it looks like. And, you know, with this greed probably to meet um, the locals, especially gay guys. Um, and and um, yeah, he, he, um, he was, uh, he, he rented an apartment in the very center of the city uh, in front of uh, which there was this uh, very popular cinema a few blocks later, uh, farther. There, 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 there you have the uh, sauna, gay sauna, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was very popular at that time. The main street of the, uh, leading to the main market was just, you know, like a minute walking distance. And um, so he was really probably happy in this place, uh, eager, for knowledge and for knowing people and the culture as well. And um, he brought probably something that was not <laughs> recognized as a positive in Poland, in this system, because when I read this, this archives, they were always saying the militia and, and the, the, the uh, the special forces they did they were always saying like he's so so much crazy because he he brought the pencils the colorful pencils and he and books and he and it is for free for everyone this is something suspicious you know because why someone would lend would give you the book and you know like this you know in in english or french and uh, so they were like always spying and thinking not only on Foucault, but on the Institute as well, um, in the whole, on the whole Institute. So, and he was traveling as well to Gdańsk and to other cities. So probably he wanted to recognize, to, to, to feel this, the, the, the country. Um, and then he met this guy and uh, young and beautiful <laughs> and yeah, probably there was a, maybe not love, but some kind of emotions between them. Jurek uh, was his name. And uh, they spent some time together. Uh, and Foucault, when he left the country uh, a year or two later, uh, he invited Jurek to Paris. And even if he, if, no, at that time he didn't know, he, uh, he realized that Jurek was the spy because Jurek told him uh, when he went to Paris. And, uh, but he invited Jurek and he had, I, maybe it's too much to say, but he had kind of fun with it, you know, because it was so crazy. It's, it was so um, unpredictable you know, to be in this system, to feel this system and to realize that you may be excluded like from one moment to another, just like this. And this young guy, guy who, who, who wasn't even, I don't know about his sexuality, but he was married after, uh, to a woman. And uh, so <laughs> he, he was probably um, surprised by, by this system who may use this young innocent guy to infiltrate uh, someone's life, you know, basically. And um, 
But I, I believe he came to, to, to see basically to, to get this job because it was a good job. And uh, it was the first time when the Institute was open after the war. And uh, it was a big thing, you know, the, the, as I said, the library, the, you know, the, the, the place where you could um, learn and, uh, French and uh, meet other people. And, you know, this, this vibe of being in the, in the middle of something important and beautiful. And he um, wanted to see how the communist work, communism system works. Um, but he didn't realize that the communism in Poland meant uh, that everyone was uh, under control. Uh, and the, uh, there was this silence between the reality and the, the truth, you know. Everybody knew that what, what the government says or what, what is happening outside in the streets is not true. Those, not are, those are not the true um, values. And inside, there, there is even uh, this expression that says that uh, Polish people at this time and many years later as well, they, they developed somehow this, this inner freedom. So you could have been only free in your mind or between very close people because everything everything in this country was under control. That's why I believe that maybe that this is the, 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 the moment he realized or he came up with the idea of, uh, of this idea which will come uh, as the panopticon, as a total control. So uh, especially that he, um, his apartment was just a minute away from the, the big building uh, uh, given to Poland by the, um, by the Russian brothers, uh, the huge building, the, the, uh, the highest building in Poland still, which is in the center of Warsaw, uh, the Palace of Culture, uh, which is called Palace of Culture. And uh, it is the, the shape of, the, of, uh, of this tower. And, uh, you know, I imagine that he could see it as a panopticon, like the, the lidless eye of control, you know, everything is under the, sh the, the shadow of this building. And it was like this, uh, literally, we may say. Yeah, that's, that was the, the, the background <laughs> of his, uh, yeah. I, I, I also, I, just to jump in here, I wanted to expand on, something that you asked about in your, your question, Jeff, which is um, sort of the historical context of, of Warsaw at this time. Um, because I think it's one of the things I love about this book is it's a really amazing portrait of Warsaw at a really interesting time in its history. Um, and in the, the, late, the late 50s was during the period of the so-called thaw after the death of, of Joseph Stalin, um, where there was a period of relative political and economic opening up um, in Poland and throughout the, the Eastern Bloc. And Warsaw, which had been completely, like literally leveled to the ground during the Second World War, um, the, the reconstruction of the city by the end of the 50s was, was still going on, but was considerably underway. And so between that fact and this kind of relative political opening, it was a very dynamic time to be in Warsaw. It was becoming once again, like a very cosmopolitan place. Um, all of these 
cultural institutions were opening up like the French Institute where Foucault worked, but also these bars and these cafes and these theaters, many of which had existed before the war and kind of had these connotations of sort of like old European glamour, you know. And um, I think that on the one hand, that opening contributed to what Remy was just talking about, the kind of how the French Institute seems to have attracted a crowd of, of intellectuals and of cultural figures who wanted to get as much of a taste of the West as they really could while being in Warsaw. Um, and on the other hand, I think probably also played a role in what sounds from the book like the relative dynamism of, of sort of the underground um, queer community. Um, where there, you know, there were effectively, you know, queer friendly venues that people could go to. And there, it seems like within kind of a certain class of society, at least, there was a relative level of tolerance. Um, homosexuality was also not illegal in communist Poland. Um, so that, at, at which was, for instance, in the Soviet Union, it was illegal. So there, so there again, there was a, a relative degree of, of openness. But I think also that may have, this, all this relative openness may have, have played a role in what Rebbe was just talking about, Foucault's kind of you know, lack of awareness that in fact this was a very tightly controlled society and that you know, what to him might've felt like sort of a game, maybe like a bit of cat and mouse with the people who he, who he knew were following him. Um, yeah. Because everyone knew that they were being followed. It was pretty obvious um, that, you know, that, that it sort of very quickly for him went from being a game to being something very serious where he had to leave Poland practically overnight, you know. Um, so I think that's an interesting dynamic in this book as well and something that I, I really enjoyed for the first time. I, I read it. Certainly. Yeah, and I mean, I think there are so many intersections with themes that he'll later explore here in terms of, you know, the way that on one hand you have this vibrant seeming gay community, you know, which, which has these, um, these spaces in which it can thrive to some extent. But then on the other hand, you have it sort of infiltrated by basically agents of the secret police. So it's, and, and it seems to be, you know, even though it isn't, it, it I mean, it's unclear because I'm not familiar with the whole setting, but, you know, it, it seems to be seen as a, a useful, kind of world to exploit for things like, I don't know, surveilling foreigners. Um, yeah, and... I mean, there was there was a lot of blackmail going right. on. There was, you know, there was a suspicion that, there was a suspicion that queer people were subject to blackmail by foreign agents. And so therefore were kind of inherently under suspicion. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, and, and Remy in the book sort of digs into these secret police analyses of, um, sort of the underground queer world in this period. And it seems to me like they didn't really know what they were looking for either. There's all of these attempts to sort of link it up with prostitution or with drug abuse or with foreign agents. There was, that seems to have been this pervasive belief that there was some kind of homosexual conspiracy that operated as kind of like a parallel social structure and that was then, you know, ripe for, you know, subversion or what have you. And I think it's, you know, looking back on it, I think it's important to understand that in, in, in communist societies and totalitarian societies, one of the methods of control was that all of civil society was basically integrated into the government and into the party. And so any aspect of civil society that, that existed outside of that framework was a potential threat. 
And so I think it was, I think that was kind of the, where the, the secret police were coming at this, at this question from. Because um, Rebbe, you know better than I do. Does that sound fair? Yeah, yeah, completely. Listen, um, <clears throat> recently I, I have discovered these uh, files in the archives. Um, and I realized, I really think now that they started to do, to do this because, you know, gay people were always under surveillance, always. And uh, uh, this uh, secret police or militia or whatever, they always followed uh, homosexual men, especially. They, as, as you said, they didn't even know what for, but they always linked them to, to um these areas of um, um, some some behaviors that they were not um, completely completely um, uh, accepted. Um, they wanted to use them, and I realized why and what for just recently because I just finished this this another book, uh, which somehow f follows the Foucault. Uh, book and um, why did they start to do this? It's different than before because because of the death of Joseph uh, Stalin and because Poland um, somehow in a way they wanted to to believe that they are going to be changed as a society, as a country, as a nation because that that. You know, that the moment uh, Stalin died opened somehow the vision or uh, imagination of freedom, of new beginning, of the new beginning. So before the moment, uh, 1953, um, gay people were surveyed or followed or, yeah, but individually. And in the, the, the files that I uh, discovered recently, um, started at 1954, uh, just after the death of Joseph Stalin. And this is, but the, the, the difference is major because it's not individual, it's the group. So the group showed up as a people, as some, some and they use this name, they, they, they say this, they, they are like a mafia, like a mob or something like this, they act like this because they meet in the places uh, hidden from society. They have this uh, language that they use. They have some names that they use and nobody, know, nobody knows that why they, they use female names, for example. So they act like mafia and they have to be um, controlled, under control. So it was 1954, just after Stalin uh, died, that started in Poland uh, this total control um, upon, on, under the um, gay, gay, gay people and gay, gay men. And um, uh, yeah, and um, this, is, this is crucial to understand the history because it was the beginning. But the question is, I cannot answer it, but the question is, uh, because I answer it in my new book. <laughs> so the, the question is, uh, okay, it happened like this. This started at this very moment, but did it ever end it? You know, uh, because as you said, Sean, and you are totally right, uh, homosexuality was never um, uh, forbidden by law, right? Uh, in Poland, 
So from one hand, you may imagine that, okay, they had freedom, they could, you know, they, there wasn't anything like prison for gay people, nothing like this. But at the same time, if you imagine this group, um, of people that, that believe that they are free in this country and they, they can do whatever they want, you may say that, you may understand that they are even easier to be controlled because they don't have this, uh, this feeling that they might go to the prison because they, they believe that nothing can happen. Okay, Militia will come and ask about the names that who I, who I know and whatever. But they didn't even realize, they didn't even know that this is something against uh, human freedom, like to, to, be, <laughs> to be in this position. They were like um, convinced that they may be whoever they want to be. And it was, of course, not true. Uh, so I, I think uh, Foucault just, you know, the, it's, it's the beginning of this history, but um, surprisingly, I have never finished this story until the moment uh, now, and, and until, uh, until now, when I, uh, when I finished this book, the new book. Uh, and I didn't know that before that it will follow or it will continue. But I came back, I, I went back to the archives and I, because you know, you know it's, uh, it's very, from one hand it's very frustrating because you, you, you read this, this horrible uh, um, papers and uh, you are sick of it. But then it's, I'm sorry to say so, but it's interesting, you know, how they uh, perceive, how they, felt about uh, gay people, gay, gay guys, uh, how they really didn't understand them, how they really didn't appreciate at all, and how they most of the time hated them and wanted them to be gone. Yeah, and this really does, you know, I, I find it very convincing as a sort of genesis of a sort of biographical genesis of you know crucial themes for for Foucault's later work um I have one other thought about this which was that you know there's you brought up um you brought up this issue of language and sort of illegibility that you know part of the issue with this community was that it was it was dangerous in part because it had this kind of language which wasn't entirely comprehensible and so that that represented a problem of illeg because it fell outside of the kind of bounds of what was what was legible. And so then the other thing that kind of interests me about this is that, you know, if we imagine, I mean, on one hand, Foucault was interacting with, you know, artists, writers, intellectuals, and so on. But then on the other hand, he was interacting with these these young men, many of whom, and you often mention that, you know, it's there's no evidence that. A number of them anyway spoke any French and I'm not sure if Foucault learned any Polish, but you know, there, so there's some interesting, um, interesting way that there, you know, and this is like silence is another major sort of Foucauldian theme, but um, there's an interesting level of, 
of um, a kind of mutual illegibility or untranslatability between them. But then we also have to imagine, you know, the language of the body and um, these these kind of other more subtle languages that might operate outside of of spoken language. Um, so I was sort of interested in that dimension of it, this kind of um, way that he seems to be, he seems to have occupied these realms in which he couldn't necessarily communicate in a, you know, through, through spoken language. Um, and so we have to imagine other forms of communication. And then, I mean, I'm also interested in this from Sean's perspective in terms of translation and, you know, what, what kind of, I mean, cause it is this moment of sort of cultural encounter, you know, Foucault is actually in Poland as a kind of cultural ambassador. And yet there's also a kind of um, untrans untranslatability or incommunicability between these two spaces. So I don't know, any, any thoughts on those points? Um, you want? No, I want, if, uh, if I may, I just say uh, that the, the yeah. book is, uh, start, starts with uh, this situation, the the bunch of uh, guys uh, go into the airport, and they uh, none of them speak any language. So of of course they speak Polish, but they they go into the airport to to take Foucault from it. So they they knew each other very well. They were that was a friendship for sure. But the, the, the way um, they used to communicate with Foucault was one of them who was a little bit older or a lot of older, you know, the guy who, of course, was, uh, was born before the war. So there was this uh, intelligentsia and this education system. Everybody speak French. So they, uh, he, he went there, as I said, and I heard uh, about it from those guys. Uh, yeah, they, he was always there because he knew French and he was uh, happy just to look, you know. And there is this space, look like he was looking at them having sex, probably. That was his prize, let's just say. It's not even, it's not nice to say so, but probably as well, it may have been like this. And Foucault, of course, was um, surrounded by uh, Polish intelligence. Everybody speak French, and uh, at that time uh, in the institute, so probably not with boys, not with guys, but uh, he may have found this way to communicate uh, with them. Yeah, at the body language, of course, the gesture or some words that you may use. Uh, and uh, which are uh, understandable in any any culture, like from the context and so on. But uh, what I want to say, this um, this relations relations, this friendship wasn't were they were not only sexual. They were really fond of each other. Like uh, some of them, at least, they would go to Foucault. Uh, Foucault's home, even if he was, what, if, even if he wasn't there, he left the keys one of them to one of them. So there was friendship and relations, be, even if they didn't speak the same language or any language uh, that they could have, you know, used to communicate with that with each other. Yeah, Sean, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's. Uh, 
Ramirez is, is, is bringing up kind of a great a great point about how this book works, where you know you take a character like like Hendrik, who was this interpreter, um, the one who knew French, and he becomes sort of an entry point for for learning about the circle of friends that Foucault had there, the people that he was interacting with. Um, and the, the, you know, a big part of the, the oral history aspect of the book that you were talking about, Jeff, is um, these interviews that Remy did with, um, uh, with people who are, who are still alive, who, who knew Foucault or who knew people who knew Foucault and who remember the queer scene in, in Warsaw in, in the late 1950s. Um, and they used Foucault as kind of a point of departure to talk about this whole world and Remy, you go on these like walking tours with people around Warsaw to, you know, and the, you know this is where the, the club used to be and this is where such and such a place used to be and this was a cruising spot and, you know, this park and these public bathrooms and, and so on and so on. And um, uh, so it's, uh, I think there, there are two sort of interesting language related things here. I, one is, um, there are these extensive descriptions of how cruising worked in, in Warsaw in the late 50s. And silence played a really big role. You know, for instance, um, uh, there's a bit about picking up the soldiers who would guard the tomb of the unknown soldier um, in, right in the middle of Warsaw and how you would sort of sneak up behind them and just slip, you know, a phone number or, or an address or whatever in, in their pocket and hope that they found it, you know. Um, and one of Remy's interviewees sort of comments that, you know, if Foucault was rich and if he drove a fancy car, all he needed to do was turn up. He didn't have to say anything, you know. There were these aspects of voyeurism going on. There were, you know, it was, for all of the relative freedom we were just talking about, you know, queer sexuality still had to happen on the margins, um, partly because, and this is something one of your interviewees talks about, Poland was a poor country and people often didn't live on their own. They often lived with their parents or with other people. And so finding privacy, finding intimacy um, had to, you know, sort of contrary-wise had to happen in public places like parks and like bathrooms. Um, so that's, so again, you know, silence um, uh, and sort of lack of communication played a big role in that. From a translation standpoint, um, one of the challenges with Sort of the linguistic aspect of this book it was that there was there was and still is this whole you know queer slang this queer coded language um that many of the people in the book use um and uh it's i i you know i i am not an expert on on, on queer polish slang but it's it's not the kind of polish that i hear every day on the street <laughs> um it's a lot of vocabulary that i didn't know um a lot of um, a lot of very unusual expressions, a lot of dirty humor, a lot of camp, you know. Um, and I had to, because this is a piece of, you know, this is a nonfiction book, but it's a literary book, right? And I had to think very hard about how to convey that in English in a way that would, that would work and that would sort of carry the same cultural implications and would still show all of the creativity and color and vibrancy of language that, um, uh, that these people were using, um, while also sticking, because it's nonfiction, while also sticking as close as I could to what they were actually saying. Um, and so I spent a lot of time researching queer English slang from, from the 50s and, and early 60s. You know, I, um, I read um, John Retchie's City of Night, which is, among other things, is about, is about cruising and hustling in, in New York in the late 50s. 
um, and is written, you know, in, in a style that that brings out all of all of this slang and all this special use of language. Um, uh, the Boys in the Band was also something that I that I turned to because there had just been a new movie version of it, and it was interesting because I, you know, queer language is is like any kind of language is so shaped by the particular social environment that it exists in. And America in the late 1950s and Poland in the late 1950s were very, very, very different social environments from one another. And so on the one hand, I wanted to use authentic English slang. I, I wanted it to sound like real English, um, but I had to kind of uproot it from, um, from, its, from, from, its social, from its social roots, its social grounding. And I had to kind of change certain dynamics within the language. And I think the, I mean, the result to me is very strange because I think, I think the English works, but they talk very differently in English, these characters than, than they do in Polish. Um, and I don't, I kind of don't know how to feel about that. It's, it's something that I definitely know other translators would have done this differently. Um, and I know translators who would have tried to create like a completely new English for these people to speak. And it could be, you know, unique to them and specific to the place that, that um, where they were, where they were living and that they were operating in. Um, but uh, I, you know, I, I took the approach that I did and I think, I hope, I, I hope it's, it's successful. Um, it was certainly a lot of fun to, to work on. Although, as I say, very, very difficult. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, as I said, I think it's, and I, I found it um, particularly interesting in relation to this whole theme of kind of legibility and, you know, the fact that, and, and I also thought it was interesting to see the parallel between this coded, you know, this coded language of this community. And then on the other hand, the kind of coded language of the police who are infiltrating it. So just in a simple sense that you have these, a lot of these characters have, you know, um, have different names, right? Go or go by different names, um, and so and sometimes you'll have. Sometimes it's like a character. You know, you'll. There were a few moments where I was like, um, I didn't immediately connect one character to the other, and then I realized they're the same person mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because they have this, you know, different name within the within the community than their sort of yeah. official name, right? Yeah. And then on the other, the, yeah, the, the gay nicknames, and then the secret police pseudonyms and code names exactly, and things. Yeah. And, and, the, and I mean, you mentioned the secret police language. You know, Remy quotes a lot from, um, from the secret police reports and the regular yeah. police reports. And it's written in this phenomenal, like, dry bureaucracy yeah. <laughs> um, that presents its own whole set of translation challenges. Yeah, um, yeah. No, but, I thought uh, that, that juxtaposition is really fascinating and the book that it made me think of that that also does that is um this the kiss of the spider woman by manuel puig where you also have that um juxtaposition of this kind of queer you know jargon or argo and then on the other hand this kind of police surveillance report you know kind of yeah, bureaucracies yeah. um so it's yeah so it was interesting to see that come up again and i think it kind of goes back to this idea that you know part of what becomes central about this community that makes it of interest to the secret police is its own sort of secrecy and its own, mm -hmm. the fact that it, um, it kind of operates outside of the bounds of legibility. Um, so, I mean, I think in relation to all these sort of translation and mutual legibility or illegibility questions, 
you know, there, um, there's a really interesting discussion of the, so, you know, at some point, Remy asked the question um, in the book, what better place to write his dissertation than in socialist Poland? So his dissert the dissertation in question is what becomes history of madness. So, you know, I think we've kind of been touching on how this, um, you know, how, how this milieu seems to have incubated ideas that, and, and kind of sh shape the perspective that, that is articulated in that book and then in his later work. But I was also interested in this passage that was kind of about, also about questions of, of legibility, illegibility, translatability, untranslatability, et cetera. Um, so this is um, from the section called The History of Reason. And um, the history of madness is a dispute between reason and unreason, the desire to gain knowledge of that which falls outside of knowledge, which is itself anti-knowledge, the conflict of reason and madness. Foucault asks, how do we know madness is madness? How do we define what is mad? How can reason grasp unreason? Another potential question, how can a non-homosexual understand a homosexual? There can be no knowledge of that which falls outside of knowledge. Madness is the lack of knowledge. This is why Foucault's dissertation does not address the history of these concepts because they did not exist, but rather the archeology span of silence, that whereof one cannot speak. So, I wonder if we could just um, discuss the the relationship between this biographical period and the the work that came out of it a little bit. Um, so, Remy, like, how did you, if you could maybe just summarize, how did you see the the relationship between these two things? Yeah. The life that Foucault was living and the work he was doing in this time. Yeah, um, yeah. I believe he um, he was influenced by the by the community by the uh, time and the place that he somehow chose to to be in for a moment uh, you know uh, we all know that his uh, two major ideas is power and knowledge um, so pouvoir and savoir uh, but knowledge is uh, not only that what you know from the dictionary for example but as well it it is connaissance as in french we can say so you have to meet the the, the person for example to realize to, to recognize an issue in in this person and um, i believe he was i imagine foucault uh walking around the city and meeting and talking to people and um like grasping or, or, or uh, like sucking this, this connaissance from them to use, use it in his book. You know, I, I believe I, I wrote it in the book because it's been, you know, a few years already. Uh, but uh, I imagine the situation he was sitting in the, in the, in the restaurant uh, outside the, the, one of the, the best uh, hotels in Warsaw, looking through, you know, looking around and uh, recognizing people and writing at the very moment about the madness because, you know, um, the discipline, the, 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 the power, the discipline, um, it was kind of... Um, self-control or 
internalized discipline. People in Poland, they were living under total control all the time. And they got used to live like this. They didn't, um, they didn't believe that any other way is possible, at least in Pol not in Poland. And when uh, Sean mentioned that uh, Foucault was interest interesting for them, um, one of the reasons he was interested for gay people, gay guys in, in Warsaw at that time was uh, that he was rich, but not only, not only. He, in, his, in, in their eyes, probably Foucault was impersonation of freedom or, or possibilities of living this country, you know, and being uh, in his uh, presence was the main award, not money, because they, you know, you didn't, you, it was forbidden to have dollars or any other uh, currency in, uh, at that time. You, you, of course, people had some money from abroad, of course, and there was this, this under market or black market, and, but uh, it was forbidden. So probably it wasn't about money. It was about, you know, being in this light of the place abroad somewhere else. Uh, he would probably uh, uh, impersonate this, this, uh, this, uh, this feeling. I believe uh, it was the major, um, it was a major, the, the major uh, uh, characteristic of Foucault uh, being so interesting for gay guys, but knowledge, he, yeah, of course you may, this is exactly what happens in his book or theory or philosophy. You may read about this Poland. You may get to know this, the facts or whatever, but then you have this experience, this connaissance, and it's completely different, uh, at, especially at this time. You must remember that we were under the communists, in the, under the influence of Soviet Union for over 50 years after the war. So people were not free and they didn't know what it means to be free. Uh, and I believe um, uh, the, 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 the very... Yeah, the, the, the thing that um, happened in Warsaw at this, this, in this time, for this 10 months that Foucault was here, there in Warsaw, um, it's not only his, uh, his position in the system, yeah, but his person as it is, like impersonation of um, the horizon, that you may cross it, you may go there, you may imagine being free um, and uh, they used a lot of irony or uh, understatement or you know between words that was how they communicated and of course uh, it may look now as very funny thing you know what, how they communicate how they speak to each other uh, what kind of words they use yeah but th this was the only poss possibility to to be and to live in this time, to cheat on the 
government, on the nation, not to be completely destroyed by the system. And I believe he, Foucault, uh, might have been very influenced by this, by this feeling, this, this um, yeah, this feeling. I, I wanted I, I wanted to jump in on um, you know Jeff when you were quoting there you used the phrase archaeology and silence and it occurred to me that I feel like this book is an exercise in the archaeology of, of silence you know like why do we have to go to the police archives to learn the secret police archives to learn this story why do we have to go to oral history why why do we know so little about what Foucault was doing in Warsaw in this period? Why do we know so little about gay life in this period? It's because all of it was, you know, <laughs> I, I was thinking, you know, to quote Oprah Winfrey, were you silent or were you silenced? And of course, the answer is that all this was silenced. It was all, it was all pushed down. It was all pushed out to the margins. Records were deliberately not made. Records were deliberately destroyed, you know. And so in, and this is true, not just of this particular story, but of queer history in general around the world. Um, and so in writing this story, um, in writing this history, um, you know, Remigius had to, had to write a different kind of history, right? Um, you know, it has, there has to be a, a greater level of subjectivity. There has to be a greater level of interpretation. There has to be a greater level of speculation even than, than we're used to from conventional history. Because, you know, on the one hand, I feel very strongly, you can't not tell these stories. Um, but on the other, we're dealing with a fundamentally different set of tools um, than, than we are in conventional history. And so that's, um, uh, that's something else that I think that really appeals to me about this book and that I hope others will find in this book is I think it's a great example of how to write history about these marginalized communities, you know, whose, whose stories have been silenced over time. Yeah, and at the same time, also to kind of ground the, you know, this influential kind of body of theory that emerged for thinking about this in the sort of concrete experiences of his life, but also in the lives of these other completely unknown people who he interacted with for this time. Um, and I was interested in, you know, in relation to what we've just been hearing about this um, this phrase you use as the epigraph, um, which comes from History of Madness, where I believe he says that he, you know, he completed this book in the stubborn bright sun of Polish liberty. So, you know, this, this phrase comes up a couple of times and I'm just wondering, you know, how you, how you understand it or how you interpret it. I believe I, I understand it uh, exactly as Foucault understood this. So freedom is a practice not a uh, state of being. So um, people in Poland had to, as I said, cheat on government to be free or to, to have this feeling of being a, a little bit free. So, uh, so every day, every moment of your life, um, being under control, this is exactly what uh, panoptical means because it's the internalized control. You are not, you don't have to be watched by the, by the militia or anything, but you may be. And it's enough. It's enough. And they, the people in general in Poland at that time, they knew that 
someone could have watched them and uh, made report about them. If, even um, about the, the silly things like why my neighbor have uh, a bike, I don't have a bike, why he may have a bike, I don't, I read this kind of stupid things. Or for example, uh, one of this, uh, <clears throat> of the, of this, one member of this secret police uh, was writing some silly things like, and they, gay guys, they have this meeting and they drink tea. So, I mean, this is cre crazy, but for them, it, it had some meaning. So uh, being free, probably it's not that far from the deep sense, you know, because uh, when they had this tea, tea time at five o'clock, maybe, I don't know. So maybe it's true. And maybe it wasn't uh, a simple tea. Maybe it was practice in freedom between each other, between people who are exactly the same when they could have used this queer uh, slang and language or gesture or names and so on. And for this short moment, they were practicing freedom. So I, I understand exactly freedom exactly as Foucault. It's not a state of being, it's not the moment or it's not given. It's when you are under this, this stubborn sun. So under this belief, under this, this fate that maybe one day it will change. Because people, you know, they, 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 life was possible only when you imagined being free. Otherwise, you were destroyed by the system. And it was kind of enough for them. The, 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 the main, the most important uh, wish, dream, was to leave this country. It's not normal. It's sad. And, uh, and really, I, you know, I stayed with this, this history for years, these archives and this, this people around me who are still alive and so on. They are changed. Now they can leave the country, but they are over 80 uh, or 90 even. So sometimes they have this feeling that they lost their life, but there was not, that there wasn't even a chance to be different or to live different, differently. So uh, they were practicing this freedom uh, over the, the table with the tea or using those words. Or, and I believe uh, Foucault n was noticing this, you know, because he, yeah, he came from France and France wasn't the perfect place to live at that time. But for, for sure, it was a country with, the, with freedom on this, uh, on every, every, everywhere, you know, they, 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 they were free. And in Poland, he understood what it means not to be free. And um, the, another thing, another thing, the resistance, the resistance, uh, whenever you have the power, the, the, he says that whenever you have this, this power, this force, which controls you, there is always a resistance. So, uh, yeah, it was a dark time in Poland, but at the same time, 
and uh, Sean mentioned it at the, at the beginning. At the same time, it was, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry to say so, but after the Yusuf Stalin death, people started to believe that the change is possible. And so for most of them, it was enough to believe, to imagine, to dream. Yeah, so it's also interesting that Foucault, um, you know, he, so you, there's a there's a scene um, where the Yurek, who's the the young man who essentially entraps him, um, although he's not aware of it at the time, right? He has a a sort of tryst with him, and then they're they're caught in a hotel room, and then this is basically what precipitates his his expulsion from the country. Um, so then Yurek comes to visit him, as I think you mentioned before in Paris about a year later. And that's when Yurek re reveals to him what, that he was a spy. Um, but there, there's an interesting scene you describe where Yurek, um, they drive by the headquarters of the French communist party. And, um, Yurek is kind of dumbfounded because he, he's been told that, you know, communism is illegal in France and, you know, no such thing would be possible. Um, and so this seems to be what precipitates him, him telling Foucault what, what he was really up to. Um, so, I mean, that's a really interesting moment, but then I also think it's, it's notable this whole history and, you know, Foucault, um, you know, is largely associated with the French left, but he's pretty consistently, I mean, he joins the communist party early in life but then leaves it also pretty soon after that. And then subsequent to this, he's generally critical of, of sort of Soviet bloc communism um, in a way that many of the other French leftists he interacts with maybe aren't. And then this culminates in his, um, at, you describe also his, his uh, return to Poland in 1981, I believe. So- Or two, um, rather, yeah. Right, right. And also his, um, you know, petitioning on behalf of um, of the you know anti-communist sort of resistance in Poland at the time, um, and so you know, I I wonder just what the story um, of you know how he's shaped early in life by this encounter with with Polish communism. Um, you know, what, to what extent you think that shapes his later political positions in terms of you know the way that he did not share uh the the affection or affiliation with the communist party that many others on the french left continued yeah. to when he came back to poland in 18 uh, 1982 um uh, was published already, so History of Sexuality. Uh, he changed because of the, yeah, the, yeah, because of AIDS, and he knew about it, and um, and he was as well uh, focused at that time as well on um, biopower, biopower, the, the, the third part of this theory of power. So the biopower, uh, it's hard to un understand probably or explain especially, but uh, as far as I know, the biopower is over the population. So he came, it's not individual, it's the population. 
So first of all, he saw uh, how the uh, disciplinary power works in Poland in the late 50s. Everyone was surveyed, everyone was afraid. And then he came in 82 and he saw how the population is doomed, you know, is completely like destroyed. It's, yeah, because they were already so weak and exhausted of this uh, communism and of, of this control and everything. But the system was about to collapse. And uh, maybe now, whenever I talk about it with, with uh, uh, those who remember the time, uh, they would say, yeah, we knew already. In 80s, we knew. It's going, uh, we knew that it's going to be different. It's going to change. So he came here. He wanted to see Lech Wałęsa. He was imprisoned. Uh, they, they brought uh, a lot of books and materials and, uh, and food and, and some stuff. Then they left it in Katowice and they came from uh, by uh, Katowice, Kraków and uh, Auschwitz. I even went to Auschwitz and I was searching for, uh, you know, that there is always this book when you can write that you were there and your feelings and so on. And I, I had this idea that maybe when they were there, maybe, yeah, Foucault wrote something and I would find it, but I never did. So, <laughs> so uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't exist, but maybe you know someone else uh, would find would find it. So anyway, then then they came to Warsaw. They what they were invited by the this um, minister of health or some someone, yeah, minister of health, but they refused because they wanted to see like Valenza and not only see, they said, uh, we want uh, him to be checked by our uh, doctors. So uh, the government, this minister said, but he's fine. He's completely fine. He's in prison. It's like heavenly almost. And maybe next time. So they said, why don't we take him to France and checked his uh, health. So they, they were banished from Poland and uh, Kushner, who was the head of this trip, um, was unable to came, come back to Poland because he wanted to come back with the help uh, uh, in the future a few times. So for many years, some years, because the system will collapse in a few years, in like seven years. So um, he was refused to come and uh, Foucault never tried to come back. He died in 1984. Uh, yeah, but maybe it was, I believe, I imagine it, it was uh, emotional for him, like saying goodbye, like farewell, you know, for, for the country who maybe in a part at least um, created him and uh, his fault. And he saw that it's been um, 30 years or so, and it, it got worse and worse. Um, yeah, so this is, in total, it's, not, it's the sad story, probably, but uh, 
yeah, I, I, I want to believe that uh, he had this feeling for Poland, you know, and uh, maybe he was, he felt something uh, in this country outside of the Western culture and so on for so many years. So I'm curious, um, and we'll, I, I have just one or two questions to finish off for both of you, but one is, um, you know, I'm curious what Foucault's reputation is in Poland and how he's sort of perceived maybe both in maybe academic and more popular spheres. And then also um, just, you know, what the, this book came out in, in Polish in 2017. So, you know, what responses there have been that have been interesting to you? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so first of all, when I uh, decided to write this story and I knew it, that it's going to be nonfiction and non-academic, that was the, the departure point. It's not going to be academic. No one wants to read anything uh, from me about Foucault. I don't want to write about Foucault's theory on philosophy. I teach about him. That's fine. But, <laughs> you know, um, but I wanted to, to experience this as a uh, rediscover myself somehow. I, was a, I, I became a professor at that time. There was nothing... I know it's too much to say, but I felt like this a few years ago. There, was, there is nothing more I can do in academia. I don't want to do anything in academia. I love to teach and it's enough. But then um, I wanted to change the, the way I write, to discover myself in the writing, to use I, to, 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 to talk to people, not to spend time in libraries, although I spend a lot of time in libraries and archives, but that's the... the the other way, the, the other thing. Um, so uh, it was a trip. It was a fine thing to do, and but I was completely surprised by the uh, impact of this book. I received a lot of a proposition to make the film from the book, documentary, uh, fabulary. You say in American <laughs> feature film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, a lot of people uh, were interested in this book, and uh, it was in the in the theater. And for the first time in my life, I, you know, I experienced the interviews. Uh, it was quite a big thing for me. I was, uh, yeah, I was shocked by the impact of this book. And then the denomination came. You know, I was like, what's going on? What happened? I mean, that was a, a big fun for me to write this book. I really wanted to do so, but I had fun. And then after it, never, it never happened with, other, with my other books, academic books. So maybe, I don't know, 100 people read my other books. <laughs> and now, after the publication, it was sold out, of course, and the... Uh, now it's translated uh, in the States uh, by the wonderful, the talented Sean, uh, which I'm grateful uh, all the time. And now it's going to be translated in Spain. So the book is still alive and I'm happy for it, of course. Um, and then I changed and uh, started to write uh, nonfiction or differently. It's always literary because I'm, my, my, the most important thing in writing for me is to tell the story. Uh, 
that's why I don't want to write in academic way because it's interpretation. I don't want to interpret the world. I want to, to tell about the world, about to, you know, I want to show in, in words uh, people's experience and, and uh, uh, how, they, they, how they are, how they live, how they behave and so on. I, I love it. I, I, I'm so interested in other people. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> I know you asked yeah, about the, the book. Sorry. Yeah, no, the, I think the, the second part was just, you know, more or less what you've been talking about, what the, what the reception has been, what the responses yes. that have interested you have been. And then the first part was just, I was curious about um, the first, uh, the, yeah, the first question was, um, I was curious about just Foucault's general reputation in, in Poland yeah. and also kind of how, maybe how this book has shifted that or what it's contributed to that, and, but also maybe what it was prior to the book. So. Yeah, uh, so Foucault is very well known. It's, uh, he is um, everywhere, every philosophy, sociology, every academia, every university, of, of course, it's, he is presence, present uh, um, uh, everywhere. Uh, much more uh, interesting, uh, according to many, than Pierre Bourdieu. He's the one in philosophy. You know, he's, he always, he's, like Derrida and Foucault, they are very, very well known and very popular. Uh, but on the on the level of theoria or philosophy, um, his life was not that explored before. I believe, of course, we have, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, some books about uh, his life, biographies, and, and so on. Uh, somehow some people would think that this biography is less important or less interesting than his theory. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I, I love theory, of course, uh, focus theory, but I, I was focused on this time. Um, so he is very well known. Uh, everybody knows him. I mean, certain people, some people, of course. And uh, on the street when, where he uh, stayed, he was staying at that time in the 50s, um, there is an idea, it, it, it has never been realized, uh, it, it didn't come up to life, but it, there is uh, this idea to, to have this uh, plateau, how do we call it, the tablica, uh, Plaque? Yeah, a plaque, a plaque. Yeah, a plaque, yeah, that he was living there. Um, that it, it is, his apartment is a private apartment uh, now. Um, so uh, maybe outside of the building. And, but I saw, um, yeah, yeah, this is, this is something what, what, what happens sometimes that people are going there on this Khmielna street and with, would look at this building, oh, this is a building where Foucault uh, used to live when he was in Poland. And, uh, and I was invited to many universities and many places to talk about him. And uh, in the Institute of the French Culture, of course, as well, they are very, very uh, nice people working there. Uh, they, they have the exhibition and uh, the place where he was working uh, there is just a place to now it's the university place, nothing special. Um, yeah, so um, 
Yeah, he was very well known. Yes. Thanks. And Sean, I had one last question for you, which is, um, I mean, it, it's sort of a couple of questions combined, but um, you know, the first is, this is, um, you know, I, I, I like it precisely because of what Remy was saying before. I mean, I, I really enjoy books that try to, um, you know, take these ideas that are often confined to more academic settings and write about them in ways that are not strictly academic um, and that, you know, link the ideas to the life and so on. But, you know, we, so as I was saying before, it's a kind of hybrid work, but, you know, we might think of it as a kind of, literary reportage, which it seems like you often are focused on translating. So I was curious about your thoughts about, um, you know, first of all, just about this particular project, what drew you to it and what you think it, you know, what you think English speaking readers will gain from reading it, but then also more broadly, you know, what interests you about this particular type of writing that's, that's maybe somewhat hybrid and that's literary, but also you know, historical or biographical? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, literary reportage, um, literary um, nonfiction, literary journalism, whatever you want to call it, is, um, is a major genre in Poland. Um, it's the, the writer who I think is best known in this country um, who works at, worked in that genre is Ryszard Kapuszczynski, um, who for a long time was the only foreign correspondent of the Polish press agency. And so ended up covering literally everything over most of his career and wrote many books that have, um, most of which have been translated into English. Um, but since, you know, it's been, we're now in, I think the third generation of reportage writers since Kapuszczynski. Um, there's a Polish school of reportage, a literal, I mean, there's the literary school, but there's also a literal school. Um, there's many publications devoted to it, and it's a very popular genre in Poland. Um, and in terms of the feel, it's, you know, it's nonfiction, but it's, it's very clearly crafted. It's very literary. Um, for Americans, I often compare it to, to, to sort of listening to an episode of This American Life. Like, you know that this is nonfiction, but it's also, it's, it's been narrativized in a way that's very appealing, you know. Um, and, um, uh, I think it's interesting because for me, as a translator, it's an opportunity to translate work about all kinds of different subjects. You know, um, a lot of reportage writers write about Poland. A lot of them write about countries outside of Poland, um, kind of all aspects of different, you know, political, social, historic phenomena. I'm translating a book right now, a reportage book about the most notorious murder trial of interwar Poland, you know. So for me, it's just, it's just exciting. And it's, um, it's a challenging um, genre to translate as well, um, partly because it demands a lot of research um, and partly because stylistically, traditionally Polish reportage is, is written in this very stripped back, almost telegraphic style. And some writers do it more than others, um, but it, uh, you, can't, you have to do that sort of thing a little bit differently in, in English. English does concision in a different way than Polish does. And so it involves a lot of reshaping and recrafting. So I like that kind of linguistic challenge. Um, as far as this book, I have to admit the first thing that drew me to it, I think was the cover. It had this, this amazing cover in, um, in Poland of, a, of sort of the bare torso of a young man with a tattoo of Foucault on the front of it. Um, and uh, I thought, Ooh, this sounds interesting. And um, <laughs> 
uh, and uh, I think it had been nominated for the prize by the time that I first read it. Um, and uh, I, you know, I thought it was just this amazing portrait of Warsaw, first and foremost, you know. Um, I, I thought it's, you know, like, as I was sort of saying before, it's such a sort of a dynamic and colorful time in Warsaw's history. And to see it through the lens of the queer underground was, was just amazing to me. Um, I was um, very ignorant of Foucault though, I have to say. I never, I knew him by reputation, uh, but I, I didn't read him in college. Um, I knew kind of the broad outlines of his work. Um, and so when I, um, when I first started translating the book, I felt like I kind of had to do my homework <laughs> um, and uh, you know, do a lot of reading up to make sure that I was getting the terminology right, to make sure that I really, you know, I always say that the fundamental job of, as, of a translator is to, to, uh, to literally to understand what is being said. And to do that, you have to know the context, you have to know the background, um, you have to know the subject matter. Um, so it was, I think it's sort of an interesting introduction to Foucault in a way, because it's, you know, it's this lesser known episode in his life. It's before he was a well-known public figure. It was before his thought had really consolidated, I think, in many respects. Um, but as, you know, as Remy has been saying, you sort of, you see these threads that continue throughout all of the rest of his work. And I've really, I've really appreciated, I have to say, getting to know Foucault as a person more than, than as a theorist. Um, I'm not a philosopher. I find, it, I find philosophy quite intimidating, I have to say. Um, and, uh, I, uh, and so it, it, it helped me to, to sort of take Foucault from, from this abstract theorist into just being a concrete person who was in a particular place in a particular time, um, you know, with relationships with different people. Um, and I guess, I should, you know, just to sort of loop it back, I should say that this is, this is the whole trick with Polish reportage. This is what Polish reportage does. It always looks at broader social or historical or political or even philosophical themes through the lens of individual people's lives. It's a very personal, very subjectivized in a way, um, way of, of talking, about, um, talking about history, about society, a way of writing nonfiction. Um, and I think that it's just, uh, I think it's a very appealing um, way of addressing topics. I think it makes for good writing. I think it makes for good books and it makes for a pleasant reading experience. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I've been so interested in it. Thanks so much. Um, I think we can bring things to a close, but I'd like to ask both of you um, what you have sort of in the pipeline or what you're working on that we might look out for. All right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm working on the book I, uh, I told you about already. Uh, it's the closure of the history that I, that has been, that has begun with Foucault in my writing um, process. Uh, so uh, I never left the archives, uh, sadly. <laughs> you know, it's very, uh, yeah, addictive when you are there and you have this, you can hold those files in your hands and uh, you read them. And there is, yeah, the language, the way they speak, the, the way they, they talk about 
to those people. So this book is uh, about the something what is what, what is called uh, hyacinth action or hyacinth uh, case. Um, it was in, of course in Poland in uh, in nine, it started in nineteen eighty five uh, and lasted for a few years. Every year uh, in November. Uh, Militia was uh, was um, yeah they were um, there was this action uh, against gay people gay guys and um, they were coming to their homes they were uh, taking them to the to the uh, offices uh, they were questioning them. Uh, about a lot of things, different stuff, uh, starting with position they like or prefer and ending with people they know. And um, there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of mystery. We all knew that this action was here, took place, we knew that, but uh, it happened. I managed to discover some new things, I believe, and people who took, of course, uh, a place in this history. So again, it's the same, but uh, not in one place as Warsaw in Foucault, but in the whole country, not only one person, one uh, uh, main figure, but a lot of people, uh, and not only one year, but few years and it ends at the at the end let's just say i cannot uh, tell too much i'm sorry um at the end of uh, of the communism in poland so when people believe that the next day the very next day everything will be possible um but is it <laughs> so um yeah, this is my story now. And uh, this is my uh, last contract for the reportage, for the nonfiction book. And uh, I have some propositions, but I am now sitting silent, you know, quiet and uh, thinking about my next step, finishing this book. Like it's going to be published in November, probably this year. And the, somehow I feel like it's the closure. It's, it's really the end of the story. And I don't uh, believe I will, um, I will be, I will stick to this story uh, any longer because really, believe me, I'm so tired of those people who treated uh, gays as they did. Uh, I want to I want to show that uh, this story is um, not easy to swallow even today, uh, and this is very com complex, very complicated, and I I wish someday someone at least would apologize for this, which never happened yet. Uh, for, for my part, I. Um... I'm just in the midst of finishing up edits on uh, 
a really wonderful book by Nikolai Grunberg um, called The English Title is Going to Be I'd Like to Say Sorry, but there's no one to say sorry to. Um, Grunberg is, uh, a, uh, is a psychologist by training, a photographer, and in recent years has um, been uh, collecting oral histories of uh, basically the generations of Polish Jews since the Holocaust. He himself is the child of Holocaust survivors. Um, he's published a set of um, interviews drawn from these oral histories. And then this book, which came out a few years ago in Poland, is his first fiction book. And they are, it's a very slim, but very beautiful um, and very moving collection of short stories um, based on these oral histories. Um, it's a phenomenal book and he's, he's an incredible writer. It will be his English language debut. I'm hugely, hugely excited to see what, uh, what Americans make of this book. Uh, and that will be out next February with the new press. More books to look forward to. And in the meantime, everyone, I recommend checking out Foucault and Warsaw out from Open Letter. I will put the link in the show notes. So thanks again to you both for taking the time to talk. Um, it's been fun. And I hope my listeners will enjoy the book as much as I did. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for Thank having you. us.